to Polkish at Bethel. I'm Carrie Pethley, and I'm in the philosophy department, and I'm joined by Anne-Marie Koistra, and I'm in the history department. And today our guest is Marian Larson from the English literature department, and she is here to talk to us about Zitkalasa, as well as Tocqueville and Frederick Douglass, and we'll talk a little bit about social contract theory and some medieval thinkers. So I hope you find this to be a really interesting conversation. Well, Marion, um, thanks for joining us this week. And uh, we're going to be reading a little bit of Zikala Sa this week with students. Do you want to give our listeners a little overview of what Zikala Sa is all about? Yes, yeah, so uh, Zikala Sa, maybe students who have looked ahead in the classic American autobiographies book have noticed that there's two names listed for her, uh, Gertrude Bonin and also Zikala Sa. And so people might be confused about that. Uh, Zikala Sa's mother uh, was um, a Sioux Native American, uh, Dakota Sioux. And um, her father was a white man and her mother, her, her birth name is Gertrude Bonin. But as Zikalasa got a little bit older, she decided that she more deliberately wanted to reclaim uh, the Native American part of her identity. And so um, she, uh, she was born on a reservation, a Dakota Sioux reservation. Um, and then uh, given the quote opportunity to attend a, uh, a boarding school that was uh, a very common thing for native kids at the time. Um, you know, this is like right around the turn of the 19th into the 20th century. Um, so uh, several decades after Frederick Douglass and several decades after Tocqueville, um, there were uh, various boarding schools that were established uh, often by missionaries or other Christian groups um, to, uh, to educate native kids and to help them uh, learn English and prepare for uh, life as uh, to assimilate into basically white society. And uh, when, when she was little, uh, Zikalasa um, heard about that opportunity and was eager to go and begged her mom to be able to go to the school. And her mom, uh, kind of against her mom's best judgment, let her daughter go. Um, and Zikalasa, in the things that we'll be reading, she talks about a little bit about her experience as a, uh, as a young girl going to this boarding school and feeling essentially ripped away from her home culture, her home environment, um, having a new identity forced on her. Mm -hmm. And then uh, when Zitkalasa gets older, um, she, ends, she goes to college. She also becomes a teacher at uh, the Carlisle Indian School, um, which is a school very much like the one that she had had attended. And um, part of what we'll be reading, uh, she talks about how separated from her true self and how separated from the land she felt during that time. And she kind of realized something had to change. And um, then later in her life, she became uh, an, uh, an activist trying to 
um, write about and speak about uh, the sort of the plight of Native Americans in her day and um, help to uh, the push for uh, Native American citizenship and the opportunity to vote. Um, and then the very last piece of what we'll be reading is an essay she wrote called Why I Am a Pagan. Um, I love that title. <laughs> but um, so she ends her piece in a similar way to the way that Frederick Douglass ends his autobiography. In Frederick Douglass's autobiography, he ends with, um, look, I'm not arguing, I'm 100% opposed to Christianity of all kinds, but here's why I utterly want to reject what I think is the dominant form of Christianity that I've experienced and encountered, which he calls slaveholding Christianity. And Zitka kind of a very similar move, says, I'm, um, I've seen your Christianity and that is not who I am and that's not what I want. So um, I think both of the pieces we'll be reading for next week present really important challenges for us as Christians. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like the endings of both of those books um, are really important to you, Marion. Do you want to say a little bit more about um, the kinds of challenges you think that those endings raise? Yeah, um, I want to read one line, from, just a couple lines from Zikalasa. Uh, she says, um, dang it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay, I I can't. I, I thought I had marked the line, so um, I, I'll I'll just sort of say it. Uh, when I first read Zikalasa, um, I the, this kind of the same month that I first read Zikalasa, I saw a piece written by um, a uh, uh, by an evangelical Christian living now who had recently discovered that his, I guess it probably would have been his grandparents had been missionaries um, to a native tribe at about the same time that Zikalasa was writing and who were um, instrumental in helping to found a school like the one that Zikalasa went to. And in this essay, this author says, on the one hand, as a Christian, I understand the motivation, uh, the desire to, to bring Christ to people who haven't heard the gospel before. And, uh, and he talks about the, the good heartedness behind um, the people that he knew who had been involved in this particular school. Um, but he said, now the more I think about their methods and their attitudes, um, he says, I find that really disturbing. And, and so when I, when I think to myself, it's easy for me now with a hundred years worth of hindsight to say, well, I'm not that kind of Christian. <laughs> um, but I think there are probably ways in which I very much am that kind of Christian. I think about the, the cultural assumptions that I make um, about what it means to be Christian and uh, yeah, I, it's it, it's complicated, right? Um, the whole question of assimilation is really complicated. Well, and I think even Zikalasa's mother feels the complication, at least the way Zikalasa tells the story in that scene that you described where Zikalasa in the story is expressing passionate desire to attend this school. And her mother is saying, 
uh, let's let's think this through. That little story ends with her mother allowing her to go and making some sort of remark along the lines of, the white men have just begun to pay their debt to us by offering our children education. And so there is, I think, a very complicated idea about, well, given the options we have, mm -hmm. education and the possibility of assumption are maybe the way forward. Yeah, and that's right. That's what's hard is this is, this is one of those situations where if we could dial the clock back to um, the 1600s in this country, and if we could, um, you know, with, with the gift of hindsight, right, if we could go back and say to Mary Rowlandson and, um, and her, uh, her fellow um, white settler Christians, if we could say, oh, let's help you reconsider your attitude toward the native people, maybe seeing yourselves as Israel and God's chosen people and seeing the native people in this country as like the Canaanites, maybe that's not a very good use of the Old Testament. <laughs> and so uh, I just think that the, the narrative that was constructed by Christians who came to this country in the 1600s, 1700s, and 1800s is a narrative that allowed and encouraged certain attitudes toward Native peoples that proved to be literally deadly and then you get to the time when Zikalasa was alive and her mom's attitude of, okay, it's not gonna do me any good to think, to ask all of these what if questions. The question is, this did happen. So how can I help make sure my daughter is equipped to survive in this new, <laughs> in our new normal? You know, we keep talking <laughs> under mm -hmm. the uh, quarantine right now about what what does new normal mean and how long will that new normal last? So I, I think that's a piece of what Zikala saw and her mom were experiencing too. Yeah, but it seems like both Douglas and Zikala saw by the end of their lives really associate Christianity with empire and colonialism. Um, the, the dominant form of Christianity was one that was involved in horrible atrocities and continued to be involved in horrible atrocities. And so why would Zitkalasa or Frederick Douglass want to be associated with that? Yeah. Well, and while Tocqueville doesn't necessarily equate Christianity with the American culture, he definitely <laughs> identifies greed as mm -hmm. being in a very um, noticeable characteristic of the Americans he's seeing in what he does see as a religious culture. So even though he might not explicitly make that connection, he talks about the greed of the Americans, especially towards Native Americans as being part of the cause of what's going on there. But I think even with regard to slavery, the greed there is also certainly motivating that institution and the you know, inspiration I, of it. Yeah, I was thinking about that. And I uh, there's a, a, a papal encyclical that we often use in humanities for. And I, I, I can't remember if it's the one by Pope Leo. Leo. Is it Pope Leo? Yeah. Um, and, and so my memory of a piece of that is, is he says, look, one of maybe one of the besetting sins of capitalism 
is that capitalism for all of the good opportunities <laughs> that industrialization and capitalism have provided for people in various parts of the world, um, capitalism feeds on greed. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's one of the one of the besetting sins that we as Americans need to be really, really on the lookout for. And again, it's much easier for me to to think about oh those evil greedy mm -hmm. um, Puritan settlers, oh those evil greedy uh, white Americans in the 1830s or in the 1860s. Mm -hmm. um, and so, it, it, but I need to be willing to say, how am I being greedy? Mm -hmm. How am I uh, allowing myself to justify certain actions and attitudes because I want my life to be comfortable? Mm -hmm. Well, and one of the things I like in both the Zikhalasa and in the Frederick Douglass books is that they are both, I think, asking a similar question which is who really is the savage? Who really is the brute? And I think that also is a very interesting question coming from, you know, groups of people who are being forced to assimilate to a dominant culture. And they're really asking a very provocative question about the merits of that dominant culture. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, we're going to be asking that question when we read Frankenstein too. Who is the monster in that book? Mm -hmm. um, is it the scientist who is doing the things that that time period seemed to hold up as heroic? Mm -hmm. um, or is it the creature that that, that that scientist made? Well, in some ways, these kinds of questions remind me of questions that we've asked philosophically, which have to do with, can we find the correct mean, right? Because mm -hmm. I don't think ambition is bad. I don't think materialism is necessarily bad, but I think it's the sort of unleashed or mm -hmm. violent nature of these qualities. I don't know, Kara, if you want to say something. Yeah. yeah, well, and it's certainly, I mean, we, we talked about this a bit with the Federalist, Anti-Federalist, the thing that the Federalists were concerned about, or one of the things that they were concerned about is a lack of civic virtue. Mm -hmm. um, that having a good society has to be based on something more than just unbridled liberty. Mm -hmm. um, and and so actually the you know the the virtue theorists that we studied like um, Aristotle and Aquinas, um, but others as well all throughout the ancient and medieval world thought that democracy was fundamentally flawed. And in fact, there's a, a medieval thinker Al Farabi who says the democratic city is flawed because its its citizens are overly obsessed with their own liberty. Mm. Um, they don't care about other people. All they want is their freedom to do what they want. Um, and so if you're only concerned with your own freedom, then you're not ever thinking about others and the social contract kind of falls apart. And I think that's what's interesting about, so, about Tocqueville at this point is he's seeing like, okay, I, I, I do believe in democracy, but we seem to be lacking in civic virtue and we're seeing this the society start to fray. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and 
I, I snorted because I'm thinking of things that I've read over the last month or so about um, various individuals and groups in our country who are totally thumbing their nose at all um, requests and even requirements to in, uh, practice social distancing. I think about Rand Paul, for example, mm -hmm. who several weeks ago, um, he knew he had come into contact with someone who tested positive for COVID. He had been tested and while waiting for the result of his test, he worked out in a gym um, <laughs> in Washington DC that he knows that other people use. Um, and then I, well, anyway, I, you know, I could go on and on about that one, but, um, well, yeah. And, so, yeah. and individualism yeah. was one of the problems even Tocqueville talks about as yeah. like, this is a major danger to the, um, institutions of democracy. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons, I mean, I think going then even farther back, well, yeah, or even farther back to Burke. It's also one of the reasons that the American Revolution worked, according to Burke, right? You have this group of people who are more oddly obsessed with freedom than anyone else Burke has ever seen in the world. And that ends up being a blessing at that point and a huge curse later on as we have this sort of overwhelming individualism that's driving everybody instead of, a again, this sort of this moderate mean and what comes out of virtue theory, a conception of the common good. Mm -hmm. Yes, this period right now where I'm quarantined in my house sucks, but I'm doing it for the common good. Mm -hmm. Well, and if there is a sort of silver lining, because I like to have a silver lining, that that does give me a little hope that there have also been the anti-Rand Pauls, right? All yep. of the people like Carrie and Marion and me mm -hmm. and Sam, I'm sure, the Bethel community in general, who are able to still work for the greater good. And this is, I think, why people have this weird longing for the World War II cultures, because the government asked people to give things up, and they did. And it was like kind of unbelievable how people are like saving their... Um, I always give the example of toothpaste tubes used to be made out of metal rather than plastic, and people would actually save their toothpaste tubes to recycle so that they could, you know... Um, give that over to the scrap metal collection. Like that's the level at which a lot of people are able to put aside selfish interest and work for the common good too. So mm -hmm. maybe there's a little hope there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That does take us a little far away though from um, Zikalasa. One thing I feel like I need to mention cause it bugs me about Tocqueville. Um, there is at the very beginning of his discussion of native American, this observation that a lot of people held and the Cherokee petition actually mentions it also, this idea that if Native Americans did not assimilate, they would become extinct. Mm -hmm. And he talks about like the various tribes that had already become extinct. He uh, mentions everybody's favorite, the Mohicans, right? And I always mention to my students, they did not, they were not extinct. There are, Mohi I mean, so mm -hmm. like, this is something that scholars talk about as the myth of the vanishing Indian. So I'll just put that out there for listeners. Mm -hmm. Like I love Tocqueville. I I think he's got a lot of really important things to say, but there was this idea that like Native Americans had two options and this dates back to Thomas Jefferson and before they could assimilate or become extinct. And so this is part of the reason like missionaries thought they were doing the right thing 
by giving them these schools because the alternative was non-existence. Mm -hmm. Of course, so then what flawed premise? Yeah, yeah, and and I was just thinking, even if, uh, even if the two options were extinction or and and by extinction, you know, I think there you're talking literally, right? Physically dying. To me, one of the big challenges about assimilation, and we see this in Zikalasa, is she's trying to point out that assimilation in some ways could be seen as a different kind of extinction. Right. Yeah. So if you're if you are forced to learn English and not even allowed to speak your native language, um, and you're not allowed to dress the way you wanted, you know, like a native or have your hair in that in that, you know, have long hair anymore. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I think this is also why I so appreciate reading Zikalasa because even though she's talking about loss and the problems of assimilation, boy, does she push back. And Marion, you mentioned this at the very beginning. She starts off with the name Gertrude, but she takes ownership of that, right? She changes her name mm -hmm. to a, a, a name that better suits the Native American culture, which she becomes, as you in, mentioned, an advocate for. So like, even in her own writing, and Frederick Douglass, this is true of him too, they are pushing back in these incredibly powerful ways against the much larger dominant culture that has all of the power in some ways. The mm -hmm. fact that they can carve out so much resistance in their respective stories is something that I hope students will really pay attention to. She doesn't just go and mash those turnips. She mashes those turnips in such a way that she destroys the bowl that they're in and makes, and turnips were not served that night. Like that might seem trivial, but that was obviously for how old was she? Like 10? That was, If my daughter did that, I'd be like, whoa, you know, like something crazy <laughs> is going on here. So that's all through there too. Well, I think about uh, in a lot of ways, her move, her moves are similar to the ones you see um, taken by, say, African-Americans who are part of the Harlem Renaissance in the early decades of the 20th century. So it's I want to do all I can to distance myself from uh, the legacy of slavery that is in my family. So I'm going to choose a different name. I'm maybe going to choose an African name. Um, I'm going to uh, more deliberately, I, I'm, I'm not going to look like I'm trying to assimilate or pass. I'm not going to uh, dress that way. I'm going to write about um, African-American themes and experiences, use different images. So that kind of um, sticking it to the man sort of approach, uh, we will see again in Humanities for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Carrie, what's your favorite thing about teaching um, Zitkalasa? You know, I really like with, I, I like the pairing of Zitkalasa and Douglas um, and Tocqueville. So the, the three of them interacting this, you know, this European observer who has astute and important observations, but he's coming from a position of power. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like Zitkalasa can really speak into and Douglas can speak into what their perspective actually was. Um, and I think both of them, in, in talking about this question of identity, assimilation, I think what fascinates me is also this idea of dehumanization. 
that this entire system has dehumanized absolutely everyone. And part of, I think with both Douglas and Zitkalasa reclaiming their identity is also about reclaiming their full humanity and trying to figure out what that looks like in this, as Marian put it earlier, in this new world, right? The new reality, we can't go back to the 1600s. What does it look like to be fully human and fully me at this particular moment? Um, that's that's a great observation too and i will say that there was a time when i was getting a little uh weary of uh frederick Douglass, and i went to a seminar at yale with david blight and david blight mentioned that there is this point in the frederick Douglass narrative where he's sort of looking at the ships coming into the harbor and yearning for freedom but he said that's a human moment, not just an enslaved person moment. And he said, what's powerful about autobiographies, the best ones, is that it's exactly what you said, Carrie. Mm -hmm. They're touching into not just the particular experience, but there's a way in those narratives where they connect to us, whether it's like 21st century old woman, you know, which is me, um, or whatever. Like we all have these human moments. And Zikalasa has a very similar one, which I maybe noticed for the first time, um, this reading where she's talking about coming back to the reservation and feeling like she doesn't fit into the reservation life, but she doesn't fit into the European life. But she also talks about it as being an age moment where she's not a little girl anymore, but she's not a grown woman. And yeah. there again, there's the human thing along with a particular situation for her. And so I love that you just said that. Mm -hmm. Oh, good. Yes. And it's not to say that like, because I suppose the danger of going in that direction would be to say, see, and really, we're all human. No, right. we can't no, no, no. Get along. But, but you have that like, we are, we are all humans. And there are these profoundly human moments that connect mm -hmm. us all. But there's also that particularity. And Zitkala Saw can talk about both in this really beautiful way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's one of the things, but that's one of the things that I love about story. Uh, a story rather than a, I am uh, arguing three points in this uh, organized philosophical essay. Mm -hmm. And stories just by their nature can they can be more complicated and a person who is telling a story can even in the same paragraph say, I was really happy about this, but I was disappointed about that. And to me, that's true. That's true of our experience. I think about my experience right now, uh, living under the restrictions that we are all experiencing. I can in the same, on the same day, uh, want to cry <laughs> or yell at someone and um, notice how beautiful something is, or mm -hmm. think about how happy I am kind of at, at this particular moment. And a, in a story, I can convey all of that, mm -hmm. yes. which Zikala saw so wonderfully does, and Frederick Douglass. Yeah, yeah. So in this moment, Marian, what are you doing to cope? Are you um, streaming anything or reading anything interesting? Um, here's, I, I'm kind of, uh, I'm, I just yesterday finished, uh, the Splendid and the Vile, the Eric Larson book, uh, about mostly Churchill's, 
Uh, it, it mostly focuses on Churchill's first year as prime minister. And so a lot of that is, uh, you know, World War II during especially the Blitz. Um, so I just finished that and I'm trying to decide what I'm going to read next. But uh, what I'm what I started more deliberately thinking about yesterday, and I actually this morning made some notes on this because I want I want to really think about it. Um, several years ago, a good friend of mine who is a pastor said that uh, she said she thinks that we need to be willing to use the easier times in our lives to really ask ourselves hard questions and think about hard things and make sure that we read so that then when things get hard, we are better equipped to deal with that. And I thought, you know what? Uh, I've read a lot of books. That's like what I do for a living. <laughs> and um, I adjusted one of the assignments I'm giving for Britlet too. Uh, I'm rather than a straight up research paper, I'm having students think about how would they articulate why do we need literature, especially right now. And I'm having them choose some of the things that we've read together this semester. Um, and, and write about that. So I thought, okay, if I did that assignment for myself, what would I say? Mm. And, um, and so I've been thinking about things like, so all of a sudden I, I've been thinking about texts that I have read and reread and taught that are sort of gaining new, um, new meaning for me. So Virginia Woolf's novel, Mrs. Dalloway, as one example, uh, we end Britlet too with with that novel, and and w two of the big things that that to me come out of that novel that relate to right now. One is uh, how absolutely interconnected all of our lives are, um, and uh, Virginia Woolf so beautifully uh, portrays that and helps us think about it. And this is what you know, right now in a time of COVID, mm -hmm. I can't ignore how interconnected our lives are. Um, and also uh, in that same book, uh, Virginia Woolf is able to show that a person can seem totally fine on the outside, but have a lot of really complicated things happening on the inside. And I know that's always true, but, but still. Um, and then one of the other things I've been thinking about lately is, uh, we have occasionally in humanities had students read some excerpts from the philosopher Blaise Pascal from his collection of musings, uh, pensées. And in, uh, in his pensées, one of the things he talks about is how we tend, um, how we tend to avoid the present. We, uh, he, he says, uh, he says, we, uh, we often, here, I'll just read it. He says, we never keep to the present. We recall the past. We anticipate the future as if we found it too slow in coming and we're trying to hurry it up. Uh, we are so unwise that we wander about in times that do not belong to us. Um, the fact is that the present usually hurts. We thrust it out of sight because it distresses us. Um, we try to give to the, give it the support of the future anyway. So he kind of reflects on that. And I was thinking, yeah, I'm in a lot of ways, I'm kind of ignoring my present and I'm thinking about either the good old days of the past or looking ahead to the future. When will that be 
when will there be that day when things are normal? And I've just been trying lately to be more deliberate about paying attention to right now. Um, and where can I find beauty and joy and calm right now? And I can maintain that for like 20 minutes and then, <laughs> and then depression and panic sets in again. But um, so anyway, I'm just, I'm trying to be more deliberate about letting myself be challenged again by things that I have read and taught and studied and let that feed me right now. And that doesn't a lot of stuff, but anyway. <laughs> Carrie, are you still watching uh, the Tiger Show thing? I finished it. Although I've I've heard that there's another episode that has come out, but I am I moved on to something new. I'm now watching Broadchurch. Oh yes, British murder mystery. Yes. Crime. Love that one. So good. Yeah, which is very good. And I have now, now that I'm done with Al Ghazali, I have gotten back to digging into James Joyce's Ulysses. And I'm going to have to ask Sam's advice, our producer later on, um, about whether or not to pause every time there's a reference that I don't get. Because I get all the medieval philosophy references. I'm good there. Um, and the Latin references. But man, Joyce is dense. So, but I make nice. What about you, well, Anne I, I I have uh, moved on with my family to watching the Art Detectives. So this is a show set in Britain where there's a art guy whose goal is to kind of document all of the paintings and pieces of art that are maybe in private collection, no public collections, because it's like houses that have been donated to the. British public trust or what have you. And so like there are, you know, these paintings hanging on the walls of these estates and so on and so forth. And then discovering if he can, if they're originals, if they're painted after somebody else and they're less valuable. So we're actually learning a lot about um, not only paintings in specific, but also the process by which the collections happened. And also there's um, some cleaning of the paintings and restoration that take. So it's, I feel like it's a little bit of history. It's a little bit of art, but it's also a little bit of the craft of restor. So it's pretty fascinating. That's art detectives. Very, yeah. very cool. And I'm still reading through some of the stories in um, James Joyce's Dubliners. Oh yeah. Boy. Um, I'm going to need something lighter though. Yeah. Soon. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know what that will be, but um and I'll just mention too for our listeners, I haven't read it yet, but Louise Erdrich, our very own um, celebrated Native American author here in Minnesota, has recently put out a new book that deals with issues facing Native Americans in the 1950s with the termination policy of reservation. So that's definitely on my list, but I haven't read it yet. Mm -hmm. I love Louise Erdrich. I haven't read that one yet either. So, so. much to read. Indeed. Right. Well, thanks for spending your time with us. Um, you've been listening to Bookish at Bethel. Bye.